You may be seated, and I invite you to open your Bible to the Gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 12, the section we're in is the Passion Week, as it's called, Jesus' final week of earthly ministry before his crucifixion, and Mark intentionally slows the pace of his gospel down to show us the importance and significance of these days, his teachings, his actions, the plots rising against him by his enemies, all that will culminate in the cross and the resurrection. And so it's good that we take our time and we'll continue to go through this this gospel uh, together into the new year and Uh, We probably have 20 sermons left, so uh, don't worry, UCLA. Go celebrate Christmas. We'll still be somewhere stuck in Mark when you get back. Uh, We're not meeting on Christmas Day for Crossroads. Uh, You'll be with your family, um, so there's no Crossroads the 25th, which is a Sunday. uh, But we will meet all the other Sundays. I think the first is a Sunday, too, and we'll we'll meet on that day. The sermon will be called Happy New You. Okay, so... Uh, Mark 12 is where we find our text. Let me start by reading it. Verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true. And do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the very word of the living God. After years of economic and political malaise, no one could find their way out, politically speaking, of the mess that Germany was in at the opening of the 20th century. Frustrating years where government after government could not bring Germany out of economic depression, massive unemployment. In January 1933, a new chancellor was named. Formerly an art student, Adolf Hitler had become a fanatic and played on people's fear at the time of Bolshevism, of communism, He was able to persuade the German parliament because of the desperate nature of the times to grant him uh, a full kind of rule by edict. And foolishly, 
They let it happen. Hitler consolidated his power by abolishing all political rights, all all kind of vestiges of democracy. Uh, There was no longer uh, trial required to detain a person uh, by police. Uh, Political rights and democratic processes were uh, gone almost overnight. Uh, No longer search warrants were required. Uh, The seizure of property, the censoring of publications, the the stifling and even eradication of other political parties. Uh, the communications were, were tapped. Meetings were forbidden, all under the guise of, of Hitler bringing the German people to a new era of peace and prosperity. The labor unions were shut down, the universities were purged, and the churches were also involved. Well aware in history of the horrifying and systemic eradication of the Jewish people, somehow Hitler was able to obtain the support of the vast majority of German society, even those who called themselves the German Christians. Most Germans considered themselves Christians, nationalists. And as they heard about Hitler's aspirations to renew Germany to her former glory, they equated what he was saying with Christian truth. Even his stuff on Arianism, racial purity... Many church leaders taught that this was God's will for the German people. And the church was to submit to God's appointed government. Nevertheless, some German Christians resisted. Famous names like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Karl Barth, Martin Niemöller, other theologians, pastors, church leaders, convened a meeting in 1934, a dangerous meeting, 139 delegates, 53 church members, ordained ministers, a handful of university professors, and they're order of business was to put together some sort of statement. They didn't have any, any military or political power, but they just thought if we could appeal to these German Christians that have come under the sway of Hitler, uh, we can help them understand that it is not their biblical obligation to submit to this tyrant and the evils he was putting forward in the name of the church. They came up with a a short declaration, a short statement. Uh, It's a couple pages long. It was called the Theological Declaration of Barman. And in it, they... It's definitely a historical document and has significance for those who think about political theology today, but 
It was definitely written in the context of its times. But there's something in it that I want you to hear because it'll help us understand how to interpret this famous trap that the religious leaders in league with their government to certain degrees subjected Jesus to. These theologians who who gathered at this crucial time in, in German history wrote the following words. Quoting John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And then quoting John 10, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. John 10, 1 and 9. The declaration states, Jesus Christ, as he has attested for us in Holy Scriptures, is the one word of God which we have to hear and which we have to trust and obey in life and in death. We reject the false doctrine as though the church could and would have to acknowledge as a source of its proclamation apart from and besides this word of God, other events and powers, figures and truths as God's revelation. The statement goes on to speak of the absolute authority of Jesus Christ. In a historical context where authoritarianism was reigning over the people and the fear of those who would oppose the current political powers and agendas looked like the gas chambers. The Declaration of Barman is one of many historical examples of Christians realizing the truth that Jesus gave in Mark chapter 12 and the apostles lived out in the book of Acts and the New Testament clearly outlines in its teaching and the Christian's relationship to government. And though Christians have differed in slight ways on how to practice their faith in light of ruling powers, there are realities about the authority of Jesus over every earthly power that every Christian has a responsibility to hold on to. And it's not something that only suits the government structure that we live in our society today, a a representative democracy, if that's what this is. It's something that is true for believers who live in communist China. It's true for the secret and underground church in in North Korea, though small. It's true for believers who experience oppression in in Muslim-dominated countries, Myanmar or the Sudan or, or other places where it is illegal or seemingly impossible to be a Christian. What the What the Bible teaches and what Jesus instituted about the believer's relationship with human governance is something that transcends every period of human history, every style of human government, be it monarchy or a parliamentary system or or a despot uh, running across a continent 
whether we're talking about marauding armies or a long-seated monarchy, what Jesus taught us about the relationship between Christians and their government works in all these situations. And I hope you see how important that is for us. For you to understand this. Calvin said there's no higher calling than being a civil magistrate. It's a shocking statement. But it's because Calvin understood what we're talking about here. For a Christian to rightly understand the relationship between God and government is to be able to answer a question pertaining to the authority of Jesus Christ. And that's been thematic throughout Mark's gospel, hasn't it? Jesus has demonstrated his authority over the supernatural realm, over the physical realm, over all competing powers, over the religious system that dominated the temple in his day. And if one thing has been made clear in Mark's gospel, it's that repeated word he uses, exousia, that word about authority, that word about dominion and power, that Jesus has it and it belongs to him in an exclusive kind of a way. And so as we enter into this next section in Mark, we enter into a controversy, a series of traps, a series of tests by the religious leaders of the day. And we don't find out from Mark what what all the machinations and controversies and conspiracies were behind the scenes. In fact, he uses classic imprecise language in talking about how this build up, verse 13, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him and talk. What? They? Who's they? Maybe the Sanhedrin, maybe a, a cabal of, of religious leaders. I, I, we don't know. But Jesus faces three tests. One mainly dominated by the Pharisees about how Christ and his disciples should relate to human government, especially to paying of their taxes. And then the second is a trap by a religious group, also part of the leadership, that normally would have nothing to do with the Pharisees, but they have a common enemy in Jesus. And so they try to trap Jesus with a question about the resurrection. That's verses 18 through 27. And then finally, the scribes, the experts in interpretive principles of the Torah, of the Old Testament, try to trap Jesus in this section 28 uh, through 34 or so about how Jesus understood and interpreted Scripture. And so a series of three traps are laid out for Jesus, three traps that he will easily spring. But in outwitting his opponents, he provides for us timeless truths that we need to have about our relationship with civil authority. And my intention here, this is, this is par-baked. It's like you get the bread and then you, you take it home and you, you bake it the rest of the way. I want to introduce you just what this text is saying, kind of the most basic principles that Jesus institutes about our relationship with the government. And then I can help you from there go and take that and, and bake the rest at home. And yes, I just called this sermon half-baked. That's okay. So... How do we do this? Let's first look at the trap, and then let's look at the truth. So quickly, consider the trap. Uh, whoever it was uh, sent the Pharisees. Remember, that's the, 
those concerned about purity, those concerned about separation, those who wanted to have nothing to do with the Roman Empire, wanted them out of the land, and the Herodians. That's the opposite of the Pharisees. They're the ones that are in league with the ruling kind of puppet government, and they are making concessions to Herod's overreach into the Jewish religion. But they are together with their common enemy to Jesus, and they have come to trap him in his talk. It's an interesting sentence in Greek. Uh, They're trying to trap his words. That word trap is only used here in the New Testament. In Greek, outside of the New Testament, it's the word for hunt. To seek out a creature, it ends in violence. That's how hunting works. That's exactly what these guys are doing to Jesus. They are intending to trap him, to kill him, to stop him, And they set it up this way in verse 14. They begin with one of those great tools so effective with fallen human beings, flattery. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. It's a fourfold flattery. And like so many statements of Jesus' enemies, it's absolutely correct. So often, Jesus' enemies, in their accusation, unwittingly say something far truer than they realize. Whether it's Caiaphas saying, perhaps one will die for for many. Whether it's uh, his critics saying, he eats with sinners and tax collectors. You know what? They were right. And here, his opponents full of hypocrisy, identified by the omniscient Jesus in verse 15, say four things about Christ and his teaching that are absolutely true in order to flatter him and therefore trap and kill him. But it's worth just momentarily noting how awesome these four statements are. They don't mean them in truth. They don't mean them with sincerity. But we know that Jesus is the teacher who is all about aletheia, all about the truth, all about the reality, the, 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 the true and unbending and uncompromising truth. They knew this was Jesus's modus operandi. They knew this was Jesus's method. They knew that this is how Jesus spoke in terms of absolute truth. And so they call him the teacher that is first of all true. Second, he's a teacher that is not concerned about the fear of man. And so they say, you don't care about anyone's opinion. This is, again, going back to Jesus, never footnoting what he says, never saying, well, the rabbis, you know, said this, and, you know, this is, there's a long history of interpretation here that I'm leaning on. Jesus just spoke God's truth, and the people marveled his authority. Well, these religious leaders had never spoken like that in their life. They'd never heard anyone speak like this before. And so the second mark of Jesus' teaching is he didn't care about anyone's opinion. The other thing is Jesus didn't have the bias that we saw on display in the gingerbread contest. He's not swayed by appearances. He doesn't care if you're a Bruin or a Trojan. He's going to cut it straight every single time. He is not impressed with the rich. He's not favoring the the poor. He's not going to favor the the, the weak or the strong, he is going to cut it straight. He's not swayed by appearances. The things, the way things seem to be don't matter to Jesus. Why? Well, the fourth and final attribute of his teaching 
is he speaks the Word of God. He's only concerned about the path of God, teaching the the way of God, the, the righteous path, the only route, the exclusive truth that belongs to God. Again, this is flattery. And these words are spoken by those who are plotting to trap and kill Jesus. But how true their words are and how thankful we are that in an unwitting way, even his enemies identified the veracity, the truthfulness, the unbiased nature, the straight-cutting kind of lack of fear of man and only speaking the very word of God in the way that Jesus spoke. It's a reminder to us that even in this trap, when we come face to face with the teachings and the words of Jesus, we're dealing with something that's resolute, that's absolutely true, that's unbending, that isn't going to change in time and circumstances. And that's why it's so important as we get into the topic of Christians in government, we understand that this isn't something that is subjective or, or based on a current political party or, or whether you like what's happening in the mayoral race or not. This is a transcendent kind of truth, not impacted about anyone's opinion, only consumed with what's true, not swayed by the way things appear to be, but only teaching the way of God. That's always what you'll get from Jesus. And it's a welcome relief in a world full of teaching that is biased, that is so swayed by, well, how are they going to respond to it? We got to think about the audience. We got to get a focus group together. Think about how we package this. Jesus didn't teach like that. Jesus spoke the word of God, but he's speaking it here in the midst of a trap. And so look at the question they trap him with. First, they identify what kind of a teacher he is unwittingly. And then they they lay out their carefully constructed trap. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? This is a question that is intended to put Jesus on uh, heads I win, tails you lose sort of situation, right? Right? Either way, they've constructed a question where if Jesus answers it, pay your taxes to Caesar, he is compromising the place of Israel as the center point of God's plan. He is approving of the thumb of Rome over the people of God, the abdication of the land promises, the unlawful and pagan practices of the rulers over them. I mean, the the Roman people worshiped false gods. They were pagans. They practiced every kind of immorality that we know of today. They practiced back then. The Romans were bad guys. Their governance was unjust and they treated Israel poorly. And so if Jesus was to say, pay your taxes to Caesar, now he's in league with the Herodians. And the people whose popular sentiment was revolution was to overthrow Rome, to look for some kind of rebellion that happened in the intertestamental period with the Maccabeans. There was that kind of sentiment, like a 1776 kind of vibe way back then. That's to throw the tea in the harbor. That's what they wanted to do. And here's Jesus talking about how great the queen is. Bad, right? Sorry, I was mixing historical things, but you're, you're all bright college students. We got through it. So that's one horn of the dilemma, trying to spear him on that one. If he says... 
these Romans, they're the worst. He'd be absolutely right. And he'd be playing right into how Jewish sentiment was. And they'd say, yes, this is the king we anticipated. And then the Pharisees would be like, police. And he'd get swept up and arrested by the Romans. Do you see how they've set a trap? Heads I win, tails you lose. They've set it up so that there is no way out of this. This is a team of religious experts that has taken one of the most difficult matters of their day, the people of God's relationship to an unjust and evil government, and centered it on something that matters to everybody, giving your money, hard-earned money, away to a government that's going to spend it on bad stuff. Taxes, it's called. You're involved in them a little bit. Wait until later in life and they'll define you. And, hmm. Some of you are getting an accounting degree and will work for the IRS. God bless you. I like you now. <laughs> but that's why, I mean, it's taxes. It's a question about taxes. It's a question about the throne, about Caesar. And, and do you know what these taxes are going to? I mean, they're going to the lavish paganism of Rome. They're going to the the worship of Caesar. I mean, he is a demigod. This is the people of God's money being funneled through Herod, who's the worst, to Rome and the Caesars, who's even worse than them. And the tax they're talking about was a, an annual imperial poll tax, one that didn't build roads and didn't... I mean, this was straight into the coffers of Rome. And it was evil. And it was unjust. And those who collected it were cheating the people it was the amount of a full day's wage in Palestine. That's the tax. The word for tax they're referring to. It's a Latin uh, lending word. Didn't mean to say that out loud, but that's, it's a certain kind of tax they're talking about. So what's Jesus going to do? That's, that's the trap. Let's look at the truth briefly. The truth. Verse 15, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Jesus sees straight through it. You can't trick Jesus. Battle of wits against Jesus, you're going to lose. Logic chop Jesus, you're going to lose. Every single one of these tests, you don't even have to read ahead, Jesus wins. Flattery doesn't work on him. And even when they use it, it's more true than they realize. The game is fixed. The contest is rigged. Vizzini didn't know both goblets were poisoned. Classic film reference. And that's what the religious leaders have done. Either answer will indict Jesus. But Jesus calls them out. And in his incredible divine wisdom, gives an answer that provides for Christians an enduring example of how they should think about their relationship to government. Government you like or government you don't like. And he says, it's a trap. And then he says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So I drove to Simi Valley with Owen yesterday. And I went to my friend Jared's house. He, he went to the seminary. Now he's getting a PhD in something called numismatics. I think I said that right. It's the study of ancient coins. You live in LA long enough, you got a guy. Whatever you need, I got a guy. I got a guy for ancient coins. You got a plumbing problem? I got a guy. Termites? I got a guy. 
Need a thousand poinsettias? I got a guy. Ancient Roman coin? I got a guy. He let me borrow this near-perfect specimen. Put it up on the screen, Ed. Now, near-perfect specimen is not talking about the schnoz on the, on the Caesar there. <laughs> but this is a Tiberian denarii. Tiberius was the Caesar in this time. Augustus was the Caesar when Jesus was a baby. Tiberius stamped or struck his own coinage. And you can buy these in Israel as a tourist. And you pay big money for one of these. And the funny thing is, is it came from my guy in Simi Valley. He sells them to Israel and they sell them to tourists. Is that awesome or what? (laughs) So likely what you paid 800 bucks for or whatever used to sit in his house in a cul-de-sac in Simi Valley. Just telling you how the world works. Okay, so this is a real denarii. And Jesus asks them to bring him one. So somebody in the crowd has this little coin. Either this one or the one with Augustus on it, but likely this one. And if you can look at it there, it has some Latin. And thankfully for all of you, I was homeschooled, so I speak Latin. (laughs) I wasn't homeschooled. Um, But there on the front of it, on the face of it, It's an abbreviated subscription. Tiberius, you see it there? Tiberius, Caesar, Divi, Augusti, Philus, Augustus. And a lot of the the letters are missing to shorten it up to fit it on the coin. It means Tiberius, Caesar, Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. On the other side of the coin, the, the tail side, there's a few words written there as well. There's some debate about who that figure is. Well, it's the Roman goddess Pax, like peace, or if it's Tiberius's mother, Livia. And I could go down a long road on Livia. She lived to be 85 years old. She was like the power behind Augustus and Tiberius. She was uh, related to both, and she was a bad lady. Ooh, she's a bad lady. But here she's depicted because she was still alive. I think she died in 32 Uh, 85 years old. Uh, She's got either a scepter or a spear and an olive branch. Her feet are on a footstool and she's depicted as the goddess of peace. She was a raunchy and evil lady. And so it's no wonder that the Jews had a significant problem with Caesar and with all the wickedness going on in the in the powers above them, beyond their control. It's no wonder this is the question they ask. They put Jesus in a place of peril, in a place of certain compromise. If he supports taxation, it will discredit him in the eyes of the people who are sick of watching their uh, hard-earned wages getting given to these godless uh, pagans. And if he refuses to pay, guess who's going to come and get him? That guy with the big nose. But Jesus won't be fooled. Yes, this governance is is wicked and pagan. The Caesar claims to be the Son of God. He claims to be the high priest of all the gods, the one who will bring about worldwide 
peace. Roman governance was blasphemous. But Jesus saw through their hypocrisy and asked a simple question. Whose portrait is this? Whose portrait is this? There's three things that Jesus teaches us in this brief response, full of divine wisdom. I mean, there's thousands of pages written on this. Samuel Rutherford wrote, a, wrote an, one of his, his life works, Lex Rex, on the nature of this. Um, there's so much. I, I can provide a bibliography on the, on the social media. I'll put the bibliography on the social media. Recommended reading. Look for it on the gram if you want to go deep into this topic. But let me just give you the simple realities. When Jesus said, whose image is this? And they reply, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. Jesus came up with the only answer that works. He acknowledges three things. Number one, the legitimacy of human government. The legitimacy of human government. Government is a gift from God. When Noah left the ark, God instituted a kind of human governance involving things like the capital punishment, the primacy of the family as a building block of society, the necessity of provision. All of these things are built into the Noahic covenant that God made with Noah for all humankind. Jesus, therefore, distances himself from the the popular opinions of his day, the religious zealots that were trying to stab the Romans every chance they got. Jesus distances himself from the overthrow of the Roman imperium as not being the will of the Savior. Jesus, by saying, render unto Caesar, cancels the guy who used to wander around the campus of the University of New Mexico. I don't remember his name. I talked to him a few times because he didn't have an option. He was a nudist. Thankfully, the police had made him put on some very tiny denim shorts. But he had a he had a he had a, a widespread place on campus, and he would talk to everybody. And he only made five hundred bucks a year because then the government couldn't tax him, and the money would go to fighting Iraq. And he was against everything. And and there's Christians who thankfully wear more clothes than that, but who think similarly. Like I got to separate from government. I got I got to get out from under government. I got to I got to move to a place where I can't be ruled over. But Jesus is reminding us that human government is legitimate. It's a gift from God, and God is sovereign over all political affairs. Crooked elections, military coups, none of these are outside of of God's control. And that's the first thing to acknowledge when it comes to rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar is there will be Caesars, and there will be Pol Pots, and there will be Hitlers, and there will be Trumps, and Bidens, and Clintons, and Jeffersons, and 10,000 other earthly leaders. And all of them are part of God's plan for the legitimacy of human government. And if you think human government is bad, there's really only one thing worse. It's the lack of human government. It's chaos. Some of our missionaries live in places where the government is, in certain periods of time, completely broken down. 
And though they lived under a communistic and evil government that was opposed to them before, there was some level of order. There wasn't just bandits running the streets. And so the only thing worse than government is no government. And this passage reminds us that even in dire situations where the government is evil and against Christians, it's something that we acknowledge as legitimate because of God's sovereignty. Second truth that we learn from Jesus in this passage is that there are duties, obligations that government has that do not infringe on our obedience to God. Things like paying taxes. Write down Romans 13, 1 through 7. Write down 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17. Be subject to the emperor. Write down 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6. This passage, just by putting Caesar's things and God things together, remind us that there are duties that we have to the government that do not stop you from obeying God. That you can pay your taxes and vote and do all kinds of other civil things. You could even be involved in human government itself. Be a, be a you know, run for chief city councilor of garbage men or whatever. You can do all those things. They're legitimate. And those things aren't automatically and necessarily against your Christian faith. So that's the second kind of big truth that Jesus is pressing on us. But there's a third and final truth I want you to see here. And it's that government does not have total authority over their citizens. Government does not have total authority over their citizens. The state has limitations. And those limitations are best described in the words, to God the things that are God's. Jesus' response is brilliant because he acknowledges the legitimacy of human authority under the auspices of God's sovereignty and shows that there are ways that Christians need to live in this society as good citizens in submission to government and simultaneously shows us that that submission that we have to earthly rulers is not ultimate when it comes to the sphere of the divine. Jesus is brilliant because he shows us that the duty that we have to Caesar is surpassed by the duty we have to God. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. It's similar to what Jesus said to Peter back in chapter 8 when he said, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Jesus in saying that is insisting that there is a higher and ultimate authority in our life that belongs to God and God alone. And so when we consider political and civil matters, we don't consider them apart from our faith in God or apart from the unmistakable authority, exousia, of Jesus. Caesar and God were both authorities in Jesus' day. But who's the one that lays all this out? Well, Jesus does. Because his authority is ultimate. It's over all other authority. And so Christians have historically thought about this in terms of spheres. And there's some overlap in these spheres. 
things that we can do as Christians and as citizens. And there's some things that don't overlap in these spheres, things that the government may ask of you that will require your death because you refuse to obey them. And whether that's a case like Daniel not bowing down or a case where the apostles say in Acts chapter 5, we must obey God rather than men because they were commanded not to preach, or whether it's a case where you will not be able to have the same kind of employment other people have in the future because you hold to biblical ethics. These are realities that matter. But ultimately, the way you determine this is by saying, in the most ultimate sense, there are kings in this world, but about all those other kings are over King Jesus in his throne. Because Jesus' authority is over them all. Interesting that in this passage, the word image is used in verse 16, whose image is on this coin. You see, people are made in God's image. But Jesus is the very image of God. And so humanity made by God and in His likeness is intended to be under the authority of human governments existed and instituted by God. But all authority is ultimately due to God. All obedience is ultimately due to Jesus. And so when we obey the government, we obey God. And when we disobey the government, we obey God. Because ultimately, our priority is our submission to King Jesus. There's lots more we can explore, but I think that's the basic truths of what Jesus is saying here. I'll put some stuff, if you want to read more about this, up on the gram, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for this time we've had together to look to the Scripture and be taught your way of living. God, thank you that there is no greater authority than your authority. There's no greater wisdom than the wisdom of Jesus. And that Jesus shows us how we can live in whatever circumstance history unfolds in a way that honors Christ. We pray for peace. We pray for a way to live that will be unbothered by human authorities. And God, we pray for courage to stand when we must stand against them in obedience to Christ. Thank you for this truth. All authority belongs to you. In Jesus' name, amen.